0: Yeah, Lee Daniels and Paul W.S. Anderson are the two most important American <laughs> filmmakers of this century. You, yeah. gotta, you gotta get real. Well, look, I've, I've told this story before many times, but a teamster came up to me at, at the arcade in Wicker Park several years ago, and he said, uh, You got a real cool look. You want to be in, uh, you know who Lee Daniels is? <laughs> I said, I know, yeah, I know who Lee Daniels is. He said, this guy's a fucking genius. He takes meetings in bed. Oh, God. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to
1: preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He
2: will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. <laughs> no they,
0: they are we thought they were we That's hot. hot out there.'s we all walk out there very, very very hot. Open fire! Well,
1: hello folks and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which the host selects a topic and the other two, hosts bring films to the table for that topic to explore, discuss, argue about. Uh, my name is Andrew Stasulis. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined here with... Ryan Saunders. And... Eric Marsh. And it was my topic this week. So I, as you both know, am a bit of a, a contrarian and a bit of a cynic at times, And uh, though I think escape is a really exciting uh, sort of cinematic theme and topic, I'm often more excited about the films in which people aren't able to escape. So my topic this week was no escape. Uh, This theme has often fascinated me. I mean, so many of my favorite authors and directors often explore this, you know, stuff even like, you know, Beckett, you could argue, a lot of his plays and stories are about that sort of inability to escape on an almost existential level. Uh, and even, you know, others like Rob Grier, Alain Robe Grier has often been one of my favorite writers and some of his movies I like. Uh, and that's often a topic as well for him, you know, this idea of being sort of trapped. And of course, you know, Kafka, among other writers, is someone who who often deals with that same sort of existential doom when we try to escape uh, from from one aspect of our life to another. So that was a topic that I thought would be a lot of fun for us to explore this week. And I'm very pleased to say that, um, you know, I think that both of these films uh, sort of revolve around that on a, on a sort of spiritual level, on a, again, a philosophical or existential level, this inability to escape. So why don't we just jump right into it? Um, Marsh,
0: what is the film that you brought to the table? Well, sometimes when thinking of a topic or or a film, you know, it's hard sometimes. You want to pick the right thing and you find maybe there's no escape from having to choose, right? (laughs) And when you find yourself in that dilemma, I think it's best to just you know look for the signs in the universe and so uh, a day or two after you had picked the topic I was on Twitter as I often am and saw that uh, Cinephobe TV the pirate streaming channel was showing a Kafka-esque Polish film and I thought oh okay you know that might be a little nois escapee and I looked into it a little bit and I thought This might work. I haven't seen uh, any films by this director or read anything by him, but at any rate, I picked the film Salto from 1965, a.k.a jump aka somersault mm-hmm. it is a polish film written and directed by tadeusz Kanowicki, uh, who is most known for being a writer in poland but also made i think like six films over the span of uh, 40 years in the uh, 50s through the 80s he had a very fascinating life as a lot of these old eastern european guys did world war ii sort of upended his entire life he was i think like a teenager when it had happened, and uh, he fought in the home army in Vilnius, Andy, I don't know if you know, he's Lithuanian, and yeah, so he, you know, he lived that life, uh, fighting the Germans, fighting the Soviets, coming to terms with, you know, the new Russian reality, and thriving in that system, and becoming disillusioned by that system as well, and that's a sort of, like, who Konowitski is. And so this film specifically stars Zbigniew sibolski the Polish James Dean, as this sort of wandering man who hops off a train and into a small Polish village where he proceeds to just hang out for the day and become kind of a prophet, kind of a trickster, kind of a a healer. Yeah, he sort of wanders into this town which also kind of functions as a dream world in, in certain ways and it deals yeah, kind of explicitly with questions of Polish identity and specifically as it relates to the Second World War and the ghosts of the war sort of haunting all these people, if they're even alive, to begin with. Uh, So that's really it. It's, you know, it's, it's firmly within that kind of European art house film genre of the 1960s right it's black and white it's very poetic it's very literary there are endless conversations and wandering and uh yeah that's uh that's salto
3: hell yeah uh ryan how about you what did you bring to the table one of the first things that comes to mind when you think of no escape are often people literally being trapped typically in horror films and a lot of those had come to mind, but then I was starting to think about a film I had been meaning to watch for quite a long time that involved a hostage situation and how sometimes the the act of being held hostage, uh, presumably, I mean, you know, I've never been held hostage, uh, literally, but the idea that being held hostage, that there is no escape from that. And so this film, Clear Cut, from 1991, and another reason I was thinking about Clear Cut as... A jumping off point from No Escape is it does deal with a subject matter that I have particular interest in, and that is the struggle of the indigenous people of the Americas. And this is a film sort of also about how there really is no escape from the violent legacy of your own country and how even with the best of intentions, it's still something that needs to be reckoned with. And this is a film that presents a very intense version of how maybe we can reckon with that so the film funny enough it is a polish director so it's a f- amusing pairing between the two films uh, in that sense his name is uh richard bugadzki uh and not as eloquent of a pronunciation as, as marsh who clearly practiced uh is which I, I, I like yeah so um Bugacki Was uh, notable for making a film called Interrogation in Poland that um, didn't really fit with the Communist Party line and he had made it in the early 80s it got suppressed and it was eventually released in 1989 but in the interim he had sort of fled to Canada and that's where he spent some time in exile and when he was there in 85 and beyond he was making some television episodes and then he made this sole feature Clear Cut from 1991 Clear Cut is about, there's an impending clear cutting about to happen on indigenous land and in a disputed territory in Canada where they're going to sort of create a mill by like completely wiping out all the trees in the area, uniformly cut down, you know? And the film follows a lawyer named Peter who is fighting for the indigenous populations of Canada and he's lost the case. He's looking for an appeal. You know, he is definitely defeated. He doesn't think the appeal will be successful. And yet, as, you know, as their defender, as their white spokesperson, he feels that he needs to be the one. that is it's like making it clear we will continue to appeal. We need to stall the construction. He crosses paths with a man named Arthur. Who is played by Graham Greene, the legendary Graham Greene, uh, in a performance that he called his favorite performance of all time, the favorite, his favorite film that he ever acted in. And, you know, typically I feel as Graham Greene, uh, I see him in a lot of stuff as sort of a comedic relief, and here he uses those comedic chops to give like a very, very intense edge. When Peter meets Arthur, And Arthur is asking about what the next steps
2: might be. I'm Peter McGuire, the uh, man who talks for you. What has Peter McGuire done for me lately? You lost your case against the mill. Yeah. So what does he do for us next?
1: (laughs) Blow the place up.
2: Okay. (laughs) Tie the mill manager up and uh, skin him alive. You think that's a good idea? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Maybe. And from that point on, I think, you know, we'll we'll talk about what happens next, but Peter ends up within, uh, he's sort of taken around in the woods with Arthur as Arthur is menacingly following through on Peter's suggestion of violent means to acquire their ends once and for all. And yeah, it's a very confrontational film. I I had read that the director, you know, his main jumping off point was talking about the shortcomings of pacifism. And um, that's a pretty intense jumping off point, I think, for a film. And I thought the film was incredibly aggressive and pretty powerful because of that it it's a film that has sort of never really seen the light of day for like a mul- multitude of reasons because it is like this Canadian thriller and it kind of feels like a can exploitation film right but when it came out it came out in extreme close proximity to the Oka crisis in Canada where there was a violent confrontation between the Mohawk population and the Canadian police and people died so for, for that and amongst other reasons, the, the film sort of like has lived on on VHS and like occasionally plays um, on television. But yeah, I think it's a film ripe for reappraisal. And um, hopefully, you know, we'll get into it. We'll talk about why I think people should really check this thing out because it's, it's pretty notable. Yeah, I, I think uh,
1: the way you described the film is, is very apt in the sense that it's, it's confrontational. And controversial. I think that what I found interesting about this pairing, after watching both of them, is that they both exist in this very uncomfortable place of ambiguity. Uh, Especially, like, moral ambiguity, ethical ambiguity about identity and our struggles to understand, like, who we are and what's the best way to move through life and... Are we good are we bad are we all good and bad right and I think it was a, a really great pairing in that they both explored yeah again that sense of like you know existential dread right that that so many people struggle with and so many people have an, an inability to escape from uh,
3: yeah and I think that both of the films address it pretty literally because there's even, many elements of reality that are called into question in both films because you were talking about how in Salto that our protagonist functions as a sort of trickster at times and there is a, even an implication in Clearcut that Graham Greene is not a human being, that he is sort of like a manifestation of the typical, like from indigenous oral storytelling, the trickster. Uh, specifically in this film, um, Wasaka Jack. Yeah, the Wasaka Jack, exactly. Which is sort of like, if, if people are familiar with it, it's sort of like coyote in the like Lakota myths and other, like, you know, Plains Indians myths. But yeah, no, so I, I agree. They, they both kind of like push it to this extreme, and then you're almost wondering not only are the circumstances real, but are we even looking at people here? Like, what, what is going on?
0: Well, there's a fascinating aspect of clear cut where the, the main guy, Peter McGuire, the lawyer is very much your, your guilty liberal. And he does this, this like sweat lodge, uh, sort of like, you know, ceremony. Uh, he does a ceremony with them and he has these hallucinations and this very like terrifying dream. And later, you know, it's it's told to him, like, that anger manifested Arthur to, a, you know, to that sort of, like, what's being mm-hmm. suggested to him even literally, that it's, like, this impotent rage of this, like, white lawyer guy who would never follow through uh, on his suggestions, which were more of jokes, like, skin him alive. But no, right. So, yeah, there's a connection even in that, that spiritual realm to even, like, his journey.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he actually does two of those sweats. Sweat ceremony. That's right, um, and yes, the first one that you're talking about, yeah, it, it sort of foreshadows, you know, figuratively and literally, a lot of the images that we are going to encounter throughout the film. So,
0: yeah, the blood on the rocks. Yeah, I was yes. gonna say the,
3: the 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 initial sweat lodge sequences. It was pretty impressive. It's really, it's really evocative. I mean, you've got like all, yeah, you've got all those moist rocks. You've got all that dry wood, and it does feel like this hell. Not li- because you don't literally see any clear cutting in it, but there is like something wrong with nature, and that's like a sort of at the heart of the film.
1: Yeah, there's that that point early on in the film when um, you know we're first we're first sort of introduced to what clear cutting looks like on this section of land. And they're, they're talking about the landscape to the characters. And, and I think it's Peter who says, looks like the moon on a bad day, right? When mm-hmm. he's referring to this sort of hellish landscape that we're seeing as we're, you know, watching trees just getting sort of <laughs>
0: mowed down, literally, right? Yeah. And the, and the pilot says, looks like money to me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess the
1: question then would be if, you know, we're sort of... Uh, putting these up against the theme, right? And you've sort of already made some comments about it, but, you know, what really is the aspect of of escape that you see the figures in this film, like, struggling with? Because I think there's a lot of different sort of levels that you could explore in that sense. I think one you've already mentioned, another one I think is, and I think it's a comparison to be made between both films, but it's, like the state as well right and these offices and uh, you know these these branches uh, no pun intended with the case of clear cut right that are sort of now asserting themselves right that the characters struggle against
3: yeah i agree i mean i guess to respond to the, just expand a little bit on the one you were talking about the the element of escape that haunted me the most with clear cut was The idea that it's, you've got this lawyer who's trying to do everything through the proper channels. And it's just like any, if you have any sense of history about these struggles, it's just the proper channels like are, it's only ever going to get worse and it only has ever gotten worse. I mean, you know whatever reservations that were granted to the indigenous populations in Canada just would shrink and shrink and shrink, and then the borders were constantly disputed, so then when like when those disputed territories would be brought up in terms of like any sort of logging or clear-cutting, it would just get smaller again. And then, yeah, the film is sort of asking this question, like, how could you possibly even escape that through the systems that are set up for you to like fight for what you think is right? But at the same time, I also think that the question of how the lawyer can escape that mindset, like the well-meaning liberal lawyer is also an extremely complicated question in the film. So when he is held hostage by Arthur um, and like taken out into the woods and they take a mill owner with them, and there's all this pro- there's promise of all this violence throughout. I guess I kept asking myself while I was watching it. It was like it was reaching a point where I was like, why is the lawyer even telling Arthur to stop? How is he thinking that this will end things? Like he's just kind of saying, no, Arthur, like you can't do this. Like, this is not how we do this. You, you have to stop.
0: Cause he's a hypocritic liberal. Totally. <laughs> I know, why. I know, but yeah. it, it
3: reaches, it, it like reaches a point where it's like, how is this guy's brain not being almost even restructured through such an event? You know, it's an intense argument in the film of like some people are just completely stuck and, um, thinking about the world this way, and and then are are sort of just guilty by association. I mean, you're responsible for the world that you live in, and that includes the legacy of that world. But yeah, that was another element of escape where, you know, I mean, I guess this could be a question for like later on in our discussion of Clear Cut, but does the lawyer ever escape his own shortcomings, because he does, you know, escape from Arthur in the end. You know, Arthur leaves and he, the lawyer lives. Mm-hmm. But has he escaped? You know, is, is that horror still present in him?
0: And will the mill owner, having had one of his legs shaved, uh, <laughs> yeah. will he change his ways? I'm gonna, I'll save my judgment on that <laughs> for later.
3: Yeah, no doubt about that.
1: But it's great how they set this like the terms for what you're talking about like very early on Uh you know and whether you want to call it irony or the inability to recognize one's own hypocrisy (laughs) like you know because this character in the beginning there's even a comment made you know as they're talking about cutting all these trees down and you know using them and stuff like that for you know paper Uh, one of the characters says, you know, well, lawyers use more paper than anybody, right? Like (laughs) paperwork and this idea of like, well, you know, what is an effective means here? What is uh, the right path to take? And I think it's, it's, it's interesting as well then how he is sort of pushed down this path of discovery or maybe not discovering certain things, you know, because it's a really powerful moment that completely sort of turns, I think, the direction of where most people feel this film is going. Like, it's a shocking sort of moment when the lawyer character, Peter, is sort of immediately, like, shown, all right, there are two paths.
3: Now we're going to go down this path, which mm-hmm. is at the the motel, the hotel
1: room, right?
3: Totally, yeah. Yeah, the motel sequences... Um extremely relatable there's so like after all like the said the appeals seem like completely futile and he's like trying to convince local elders and then other people he's been working with you know like this isn't gonna work i mean if you want me to like put on a show and keep going i can but yeah he's just like cr- crashing at this motel room and there's this really rambunctious party going on next door and it's all the the really invasive journalists that were shoving cameras in everybody's faces like initially in the beginning of the film when oh my the, god
1: I, I love that there's a great- great bit in the beginning where you have these, you know, the, the Native American uh, protesters there and they're, they're you know, struggling with the cops and, you know, the authorities of the logging company or whatever. And one of the characters gets just like decked by a cop and like falls down on the ground and immediately the, the journalists just jump on him, like pounce on him, shove a camera in his face and are like what does this mean for you now? What, what's next? What does this feel like? Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. You know, it's
2: like,
1: fuck you. It's so
0: crass. It's yeah, it was like, it immediately like brought me in like onto the film's wavelength. And I was like, oh man. And that feels like just even such like a current gesture Mm -hmm. at that. It's only gotten more, you know, immediate in terms of stuff like that. Cause that's, you know, riot police, beating people and then having a, a camera shoved in their face. How does it feel? Yeah. You know? It's crazy. What's next?
1: Yeah. And so these are the people who are, you know, in the hotel room next to Arthur and they're partying. Yeah. Right they're really their, having a wild night. They're great Arthur- news
3: day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Peter is extremely fatigued and he's like banging on the wall, you know, and they're not responding. So Arthur shows up to Peter's hotel room and he says, like, all right, are we going to make good on what we've been talking about? Like, are we going to go and get this mill owner? And, you know, Peter's still, he's doing the lawyer thing and he's, like, you know, de-escalating. He's like, enough, enough. Um, but he's also frantic and can't quite focus because there's all this noise next door. You want him quiet?
2: Okay, cool. Tell him that the noise is bothering you. Be polite. We'll see where it gets you with that scum.
3: And uh, certainly it does not mm-hmm. so what happens well arthur shows up to the rescue he breaks in ties everybody up with duct tape
0: you know covers their eyes threatens them with a very large knife
3: yes there's
1: some extreme violence that is yeah. is being sort of and a know, really raved haunting the yeah
3: and a haunting club that he like pulls out of his bag it's an intense moment i mm-hmm. mean like
1: very quickly the whole movie to me just completely turns like yep. uh, when that happens because that scene is it's violent and it's aggressive and it's it's shocking right especially from the perspective of a character like arthur you know and it's immediately i think also changing our terms as an audience right that this isn't just going to be some sort of like oh woe is me native american character Whoa, oh, i hope this lawyer saves us you know with all of his paperwork and his briefcase uh-huh. And Arthur immediately like shoves him aside and is just like, you're impotent, man. Like, watch this. You want the noise to stop? I'm going to make the noise fucking stop right now. And Arthur, you know, just tapes everybody up. Yeah, starts like waving a knife around in his
3: club. And they all shut the fuck up uh they they certainly do yeah i mean the threat of violence is very real in that sequence and that's i think one of the reasons it's so effective like you've i think based off the the stakes that the film presents it's you've got a man with extremely justified anger so the possibility of this escalating to real you know violence and potentially death is very real
0: and you have the added element of green's performance that adds like Even's little humor uh, on top of everything, too, because as he's threatening everyone with the knife, he keeps saying,
2: So, you're the superior fucking race. No. No? No. You been lying to me all this time? Leave her alone. Oh, 999, nine, nine, my ninja. Don't hurt the good lady. Shit through the walls. Superior fucking good-looking white race, just partying shit through the walls, Mm -hmm. talking, partying all over the earth, just good-looking shit through the walls.
0: Real good, huh? And and it it builds to kind of a humorous and scary, you know, kind of pitch uh, in that scene. And, uh, yeah, from there, you know, Maguire, you know, is pretty much, yeah, sort of like, you know, there's no escaping Arthur for him from that moment on. And I want to point out, back to the dream theory, it's notable that Arthur manifests in the hotel room right after Peter's woken up. Mm -hmm. Right He just wakes up suddenly groggy, Arthur shows up, you know, so again, even connecting back to those those visions he had and tying like Arthur into his mind or of some kind mm-hmm. you know
1: and again, you know, with this idea of him, as it develops through the film of of him being a, a sort of trickster spirit, a trickster figure, right The trickster's someone who often in various folklore will will present a character with advice or a solution or a suggestion or a possible path. But of course, it's one that is going to be morally questionable at times or ambivalent or ambiguous. And ultimately, a character can be led down the wrong path by a trickster, and I'm going to put the wrong path in quotation marks. But so that the you know the character who isn't the trickster in this case right the lawyer like it's it's ultimately going to be his job to decide you know am i is this the right path is this the wrong path but it's the trickster's job not necessarily to present like the solution but to show you other possible avenues right other approaches other solutions uh, good paths and bad paths and that sort of thing. And I, I think that's what happens in this moment. It's like, it's getting introduced to him right now. He's here and he's saying, you want a solution? I'm presenting you with a solution. And, and, you know, it should be pointed out that Peter isn't like, okay, immediately like, I'm going to call the cops or this was wrong, but he sort of like goes along with it, you yeah. know? Uh, and then from there it's like, okay. Now we got more work to do. Now we've got to go find the fucking the guy
3: who owns the the
1: logging company, right? And from there they they go now on this journey.
3: I guess in terms of that, Peter not immediately calling the police or trying to take any action, that's very much in character for him throughout the film in terms of refusing to take any real action with real consequences.
0: Well, cuz even after that, the next scene they're driving, and, you know, Peter said he says, you know, Violence will accomplish nothing. Nothing, you understand? No, just who are you lying to? Mm-hmm. And just leaves it at that. He's not going to give a defense of anything, you know, especially because, again, if, if you think of it like this guy sort of, like, ma- manifested this on accident, and now he can't put it back in because, again, he's already demonstrated that it got results. Mm-hmm. And then they go, I like to just sort of uh little, you know, galaxy brain tie in. But the mill owner is named uh, Bud Ricketts. And uh, the Ricketts, of course, uh, you know, in we Chicago. all we all know what that name means. So yeah. just uh, uh-huh. thought that was a nice little uh, corporate you know, greed, little touch there. Yeah, yeah. it was.
3: There's one other really amazing sequence with Arthur and Peter before the hotel confrontation that I think is worth talking about, and that's when they're on the boat, and Graham Green is sort of, like, laying back with his hands in the water, and he's, you know, immediately confrontational based off of, like, the way the lawyer is talking to him as if, like, he's totally with it, you know?
2: So... Where are you from? Recently. All right. Are you a Nope. Cree? Same thing. No, they not. No? Nope? nope. Well, you know about these things? Well, don't think I'm
1: completely ignorant about the native cultures. I've read quite a few books on them.
2: Books. Literature. You do the wait man and makes me laugh when he's writing. Hmm. Well, the earlier Iran didn't laugh. They thought writing was magic. Is that a fact?
3: He talks about, um, you know, he's like, you know, our people have an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just all about books. He's like, Yes, of course I know that, like a smug lawyer shit. And then Graham Green pulls out that snake and then bites the head off of it, spits yeah. it out and said, This is the oral tradition you
0: know
3: <laughs> you're
1: right though it's a great moment because in that and again so much of it is is i think even as marsh has already pointed out like graham green's delivery uh his great performance because when the lawyer asks like yeah where are you from right i mean the part of the joke there is you're asking a native american where he's from mm-hmm. you know this you're you're a fucking white European, (laughs) your white European ancestry. It's a more appropriate question to ask somebody like that than a native mayor. Where are you from? I'm from fucking here. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Way before you are bitch, you know, but it's like, it's a great moment. And, you know, he also prods the lawyer, right? Because, you know, well, I think it's just slightly before this boat, but, but Graham Greene specifically asks him, you know, his character, Arthur asks, you know, Peter, the lawyer, What does a man who talks for us do for us, right? And again, that distinction between talking and doing. And Mm -hmm. Arthur is on that from the get-go, sort of making fun of him, poking him, pushing him. And now, of course, yes, he's been manifested, perhaps, to show him the difference between talking and doing.
0: An interesting triangle, because, of course, it's pointed out by the mill owner, Bud Ricketts, that him and Arthur... Are men of action, and it's explicitly used to appeal to Peter at various points on this like kidnapping hostage situation uh, spiritual journey that they're going on, where they're you know they're both expecting him to side with each other, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Arthur expects, I think, to a certain extent, Peter to, yeah, just let him do his thing. And likewise, Bud expects Peter to eventually free him and come around and go like, we're why, Come on, buddy, you know? And he's like, you know, you're a you, weak little lawyer man. Like, I'm a man of action. I own a mill. Yeah. You know, I've hurt people. Yeah. Cause there is that funny bit and at a certain point they've they've kidnapped
1: the, the mill owner and they're they're going there and Peter's sort of you know whining and complaining a little bit about all this and there is that moment of connection between like the kidnapped mill owner and his kidnapper Arthur where you know even this guy (laughs) Ricketts is like you little scrawny little punk like (laughs) this guy and I get it you know we may be on different sides but but they're fighting for for what they we know know what needs to be done you know that sort of thing and that character as well of the mill owner like I was just I kept cracking up like it was such a well written character and played like such on, on like such a pitch perfect note by that guy because he is this sort of like buffoonish Canadian,
3: you know, square white guy. Yes, uh, really intense Canadian accent. Super. Yeah, funny. but with
0: like a Brian Doyle Murray, like gruff, yeah. sort <laughs> of like gra- gravelly thing. I know, you know, he was on Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Michael Hogan. Uh, he looked very familiar to me. Yeah, he's been in he's been in stuff, you know, for sure. But I I loved his performance, you know, as this unapologetic, you know, sort of capitalist swine. He gives it depth, and he gives it like, you know, I didn't expect to feel really much sympathy for this guy at all. But I think I, I think there is some in there, mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. You yeah, know, on however, a human level. On a know. human level, and I think it's because of the way this guy. This guy is and acts, and, and, and especially, like you were saying, Andy, like, yeah, this guy, although he is largely a piece of shit, he knows it and admits it and thinks, like, he's right and he's fine, whereas Peter's in fucking denial about the entire situation mm-hmm. as, as this lawyer uh, who's looking to, yeah, use the courts, uh, which we all know how that's gone historically.
1: Yeah, and he's sort of poked and prodded a lot by by both these characters, you know, along their journey. Like, you know, even after this guy, Bud Ricketts, has, like, suffered immeasurably, you know, he's still also, like, sort of just poking fun at peter the whole time you know like he's suffering so many physical agonies that get quite graphic and shocking to me debarked yeah yeah we should be specific about that there's a scene where arthur just like you know peter like wakes up at their camp or something like that and, and finds that arthur is is using a knife and just skinning the the flesh right off of Bud it's Rickett's just, it's leg. It's
3: really disgusting. And it
1: is very graphic. And then that's, you know, the joke being that he's debarking a tree in the same way he's skinning this guy's mm-hmm. leg. Just
0: just be specific <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah, a little divine retribution.
1: Yeah. yeah but he's like the whole time, he's just sort of like laughing at Peter. Like, you know, he, he gets it. Uh, he understands... To an extent, you know, what's happening, whereas Peter is just oblivious and clueless throughout this whole journey, mm-hmm. you know, as much as he suffers. But it's like um, there's there's a really funny part, too, where uh, he Bud's sitting there and he's all taped up, you know, and uh, they're out in the wilderness and Arthur is putting a fire together. And, uh, but the, you know, this guy's like, well, uh, I'm an outdoorsman. I know how to build a fire. Why don't you untie me and I'll show you how it's done. You know? And again, he's talking to like this, like this, like Native American also outdoorsman. And he's, <laughs> he's critiquing the fire that he's building
3: Meanwhile, he's taped up and being threatened with a knife and a gun, you know? Well, like, it's the same thing when, um, Arthur catches the fish and they're like, you're never going to catch a fish like that. And then he, of course he does. He just like has like a sharp stick and he's able to grab a fish and Then he starts roasting it over that fire. And he says, Well aren't you gonna, you know, take the scales off? He's like, no, we're gonna yeah, eat it. Aren't you it. gonna clean it? Yeah, he's like, No, we're gonna eat it the Indian way, guts and all. And then again, Ricketts is like, Let me out of there, I'll take care of it for yeah. you. I'll get all that off. And he's like, That's lazy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> great.
0: Yeah, and that's an like that's one moment too where I believe he also says, Yeah, it's like the Iroquois way. And that's not the first or last time he mentions a specific tribe and a way of doing things but they're different every time. Mm-hmm. And that's another sort of like thing I couldn't really figure out about this Arthur character. Like, is it trying to be this sort of like, you know, representing mm-hmm. everyone in this sort of like spiritual role? Because I thought it was interesting because it came up again where he referenced a, a different tribe about how he was doing something. And I was like, that's not the same. Oh. Yeah, well, yeah, we're never, like, I don't think
3: we're ever told you know, his, but even also just in general, the protesters, they're never like assigned a specific tribe. Um, And I don't think the reservation is ever given a name. Um, So that is a good question in terms of, you know, who it is supposed to be representing. I mean, historically, that area, there has been like lots of like shifting with different groups. But I don't actually think that's the reason why we're not Given um
0: a name, but right. even yeah, yeah, even to, to your, I thought it was an attempt at like universality, right? Yeah, within right. that framework, and,
1: and I think so. I think that you're, I think that you're right on to it because, you know, even in that scene that you mentioned earlier, Ryan, where you know Peter is trying to connect with Arthur because he's read books about Native culture and thinks he's some sort of expert, mm-hmm. he's talking to. Arthur about that, you know, and asking him, like, well, where are you from? And, you know, he's meaning like your tribe. And, you know, he mentions two different tribes. And Arthur is the one who says, yeah, same thing. And that's when Peter goes, no, they're not, because I've read
3: books. (laughs) Right. Right? Totally. But the the point is that Arthur,
1: you know, the, the native character is saying, yeah, you know, more or less same thing, right? When he's talking about two tribes. And I think it's to that end of this sort of universality because he does throughout the film reference different tribal, you know, traditions and cultures. And if he is this sort of spiritual trickster character, yeah, well, he's
0: pan indigenous, right, you know,
1: right? He's I'm known by many names and <laughs> in, I'm, I come in many forms. Right. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's yeah. a, that's leaning towards that direction.
0: And this time know? it's like jeans and sneakers you know and a shotgun and I do want to mention too just to give our listeners a a more vivid uh, sort of picture of this but this film is in scope and saturated sort of color it is very like intense looking and very very beautiful as well at times and that's of course keyed into the sort of themes of the movie with the clear cutting right in terms of showing off nature and showing off like the rivers and the boat all the boating and even like ryan that shot of of graham green just like dipping his arms into the water and there's so much so many beautiful uh shots of him in the water in the mountains like that are just fucking awesome yeah it is
3: an incredible (laughs) sense of landscape for sure and it like kind of relates even to salto a little bit like that where you were talking about salto fitting into the European art house genre. Um, and this is clearly, you know, this film's like a bunch of everything, right? But it's, you know, it, there is a sense that it's uh, a very European eye on these North American oh, landscapes. Yes. But yeah, it's also worth bringing up that this film, so you've got like a Polish director, but that it's, the, it's based off a book um, and the screenwriter is Australian. Yep. It's an interesting, weird collection uh, of a production for sure.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, is even directly addressed, like, in the film, because at a certain point, it seems to us that part of what Arthur is trying to do is to, to show both these people, you know, um, Peter and Bud, right, his captives, mm-hmm. because, you know, Bud is quite literally being held captive i mean he's he's taped up and and bound throughout you know 80 percent of the movie Uh, but peter is also a captive you know at one point he's bound but then he's more or less cut loose and let to sort of roam around but it's clear that he's also arthur's captive
3: Um, yeah i guess there was like a moment for me where i did realize um at least the way i read the film was that this you know journey that he's taking them on is in a sense like Arthur is daring Peter to act. Yeah. And then Peter never does act. Takes the tape off of him. And at one point, he gives him the option to kill him. Peter says, are you going to make me kill you? And Arthur then takes the knife and he presents it to him. He sticks it in the wood.
2: When you use a knife, you got to get it right between the ribs. If you don't, you just rip the skin, the guy bleeds, and he gets pissed off.
3: Peter is still unable to do it he never follows through. And I actually think, you know, one of the key moments in the film for me in terms of, you know, understanding what Peter's failings are and his worldview and his, I guess you could call it pacifism, is he has two encounters with the police in the film. And his first encounter with the police is him responding in a way that, you know, he sees as noble and, I mean, is noble. It's when Wilf the elder is, like, knocked on the ground and about to be bludgeoned by a police officer, and Peter says, stop it, you know, he's completely defenseless, like, you know, I'll have your badge, right, like this righteousness, like, how dare you, you know, attack the oppressed, right, he's, like, fitting in a role that he thinks he should be doing, and may even truly believe it as well, I mean, there's no reason to, to doubt that, but then his second counter with the encounter with the police is when the same police officer, and then another one, track them down out in the woods they at this point Ricketts has been debarked his leg has been you know stripped clean and when they arrive immediately peter is saying let's go like just take us away from here he has a rifle and it's he's you know he's going back into his uh man of inaction In his lawyer mode, he's like, "Don't worry about him. Leave him be. This is something we cannot face. We cannot reckon with. Get us on the boat and get us out of here." He has a rifle, and then of course, they do attempt action, but Arthur shoots them, the police, and kills them. But I thought it was a really telling moment, like when he's in a moment of crisis here. He's encouraging the police, you know, "No action. Get us away. Like we this. This is a problem that I." cannot solve and that's when i realized i did think maybe there was no escape for him that he was trapped with that way of looking at the world
0: well he certainly acts to save the mill owner several times he does he does Uh, yeah so
3: yeah i mean i guess you know the film sort of has this climax where peter does actually fight arthur and gets a what seems like a pretty decent jab with the knife in in Arthur's chest. Um, it's hard to tell how like deep he went or if he punctured anything, but it does seem as if by then committing a violent act, Arthur sort of he returns to the water. He's like, "My job is done." Like maybe you've learned something here. In, in well, Grand yeah, and Graham Green just
0: like sinks. You got to be specific again too, because it's like he pulls the trigger of the shotgun at Arthur. Point blank, Mm -hmm. but misses because
3: his glasses have been crushed.
0: Well, he misses the first one, maybe on purpose, or maybe because he can't see. But the second one, Mm -hmm. he intended to shoot and kill him, Mm -hmm. right? So, and exactly right. Lesson learned, as Arthur just. In an amazing little just like extended bit, you know, where he's just sinking into yeah, the water yeah. in like a Christ-like pose yeah. almost. His arms outspread, yeah. He it's an incredible vanishes. shot because
3: he, he does go quite deep in the water. Yeah. He like truly disappears. Um, he held his breath for a while.
0: That wasn't no f- dummy.
3: I don't think that was a dummy. That looked like him. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but again, right, it goes to that, that question of, you know, whether or not his character is mythic otherworldly figure right this trickster spirit that yes like you said job done like goodbye everyone like i'm returning back to the earth you know because there's also those moments when you know when they do approach to like that cave and you know it's like he knows all these 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 places that that seem like far outside the realm of like our material world but the you know he is of the earth and we we see that and that's what he's trying to also show them you know because there's also the the moment when he is showing them the beautiful landscapes and he's sort of like asking like do you see, like, do you see, you know, it's not just about showing them that, you know, maybe violence is some sort of solution to problems or whatever. Uh, because I think that's where the movie can get really kind of controversial. You know, mm-hmm. if you're saying that this is like a pro ecoterrorism movie uh, and not just like, you know, chaining yourself to a piece of uh, construction equipment, but <laughs> kidnapping someone and yeah. threatening them with violence, but that he's also trying to show them the beauties of, of the earth, the beauties of this landscape that, that, you know, one is, you know, clearly through his business destroying and the other one allowing to be destroyed through his inaction or his, you know, uh, inability to actually affect any meaningful change, right? But that these characters, they struggle to, to see that, to see what he's trying to show them.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And also just trying to show, you know, Peter there's again you know it's like we talked about you know in several episodes i I think right it's like the violence is already being done to the people who live here already Mm -hmm. right and arthur is showing him that as well and going like we're under attack
3: and then there's that great moment too where peter says to arthur like haven't you done enough like hasn't this gone on long enough have you you know after debarking Ricketts's (laughs) leg and And Arthur says...
2: Well, you wanted them hurt, right? Sitting alive is what you said. Well, I am your friendly neighborhood cruel engine. They can escape. They always do escape, wake up gone from what they do. The bad ones, the terrible ones with their chainsaws and their log skitters. They always wake up gone from what they do. Stop it! I'm cauterizing the wound. Or do you want him to bleed to death? I don't want him to bleed to death. Uh, You think I'm cool. You'll forget about the trees and the kids born stupid and the judges who laughed. You'll forget. Arthur will still be cool. Stop it. Stop me. your revenge? You know that the soldiers used to play catch with the breast of Navajo women. <laughs> and they were slippery and hard to hang on to. And the soldiers, they'd all laugh. <laughs> Arthur's cruel, and I forget why. Well, it's time for them to pay. How much? More than this. This is enough. Enough? This is nothing. This is only one man's leg. God damn Damn you,
1: come cheap. It's a great point, you know? And again, it's sort of measuring the legacy of the indigenous population of the Americas, I guess, if you want to even go that far. If his character is this sort of, you know, pan-tribal uh, figure or, you know, this... this the trickster who has sort of bounced around and, and appears where he's needed or where he feels he's needed, but yeah, you know, it's it's like one stupid fucking businessman is a tragedy compared to what has happened to this entire continent, mm-hmm. right? And the peoples who've lived here for thousands of years, yeah. And that we're getting all bent out of shape over (laughs) this fucking Canadian idiot. Right. You know? (laughs) I mean, and taking it even farther, right? Like, this film was made in 1991, you know? And look where we are today in our discussions of, like, climate change and, I mean, the fucking Canadian pipeline that's been a huge firebrand over the last several years, you know? And that, again, it's like... We're killing this planet. People like this are destroying this planet. People like Peter are, you know, clearly moving at a
0: at a no pun intended, like a glacial pace. And profiting, as is pointed out multiple times, you know, to him in the film, like multiple characters, uh white and native, are like, oh, you just make money off this. Like, that's what you do.
1: Yes. You mm-hmm. make
0: money off this battle between capitalism and the U.S. government versus Native Americans. You're the guy who just files paperwork and, and you know, cashes the check.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they, they literally <laughs> approach Peter and say, oh, well, you still get paid when you lose. Yeah, You know, when mm-hmm. they first lose that court case. It's like, well, you're still getting paid. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, if anything, I guess the Canadian <laughs> government's efforts to suppress this movie were successful. I mean, I think the world we're living in has only gotten worse for a lot of the <laughs> issues that this film is trying to confront, you know? But that's also part of the point,
1: right? Because, yeah. I mean, like, you know, uh, he if he is a trickster spirit, he's not necessarily presenting, like, the best solution, the best possible path, but a solution, a path, and one that's often filled with chaos. And at least he's committed to it. Sure, sure, but again, even in the end, right? Like... What does Arthur's journey what does his you know his action actually end up solving in the long run for anyone like again measuring it in, in the, right in the macro I would, ha-
0: I would have to see the sequel where you know I see what kind of uh, work changes the mill owner made, <laughs> made when he got back to the office after his hospital stay yeah you know? or I Peter's mean, role uh, in the Oka crisis but I, again you know? dude right I think that's deliberate and that the film does end on a note where, yeah, there can be no clear cut solution because it just stops right after this trip and after this event. And there is a like a little wink and a nod, of course, where this uh, child on the reservation, Polly, who's seen throughout the movie, uh, sort of carrying the lawyer's briefcase for him and smoking
3: a little and, child, and, yeah, smoking, yeah. <laughs> and doing,
0: yes, yeah, and smoking and Peter looks at Polly and sees that Polly is wearing Arthur's necklace. And he has this moment where he's just like staring at this kid and then he kind of smiles. And I'm like, what, is-? again, it's sort of ambiguous in terms of like, what did Peter learn? I, I would have to see what he does next, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so the film does, yeah, it really ends in this like zone where, yeah, nothing, nothing is clear, nothing is... Uh, definitive. And also
1: again, to the topic, like I thought, you know, I think once you get through the whole film and you watch it, and again, the idea of like no escape, like this film, it it fits very well for me into that theme because even after Arthur's journey, even after all this stuff, again, the question is like, are we going to escape from this kind of oppression? Like, no, right? Like even after these kinds of acts, but it's also right, you know, Bud doesn't have some big learning experience from it. You know, he just sort of like gets through it and then is with the cops. And he like points an accusatory finger at Peter, and he as he's like, he's also part of this shit. Like, <laughs> this guy also did this shit, and the cops put the cuffs on yeah. Peter. Like, Peter gets cuffed at the end. And, and Peter saved. Squad yeah, guard. and
0: Peter saved his fucking life.
1: Right. You know, but from his perspective too, he's like, this guy is part of. You know, yeah, he started it. Yeah. Like I'm. You know, he didn't do shit or whatever, and he can't even recognize that. You know yeah. that it also just ends with. With Bud being like, wow, I'm glad you guys got here, you know, just in time. Yeah, that guy was part of it, you know. He didn't yeah. see he fucking didn't do shit for me, you know? That that it ends with sort of the state, the authorities triumphant again, if you want to look at yeah. it from that perspective. Yeah. Law and
3: order's restored. But you know? again, it is really interesting when you think about this film being filmed at the same time as the Oka Crisis, where there was a violent confrontation between indigenous protesters and the police and they succeeded i mean people died but they prevented the golf course from being made and they like reclaimed the land however momentarily right so imagine a film like this coming out and then yeah the government you know, we gotta censor this we shit. can't have this you know like yeah it's 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 crazy i mean and
1: isn't this also right around the same time as uh, a, a film that would really
3: like advance graham green's career uh Dances with Wolves. Uh, Dances with Wolves was actually 1990. So it came out the year before. Ah, there
1: you you go. Right. Again, even more interesting. Right. Totally. I agree. From his
3: own perspective, too,
1: because he was nominated for an Oscar, I think, for Dances with Wolves. Right. Best Supporting Actor. Wasn't he nominated in in that? And, you know, it's often been described like that's the film that sort of like helped really like, you know, make him more of a of a, you know, established actor Mm -hmm. in Hollywood and stuff. And yet, from his own perspective, a much more controversial and confrontational, militant character, or chaotic trickster, uh, that Graham Greene himself prefers this performance and prefers probably the 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 aspect of representation that this film presents for Native actors and Native Americans in general.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. he took all that uh, all that goodwill from Costner Vision, and uh, yeah, did this angry as fuck movie. And that is, yeah, that's like really awesome.
3: Yeah, it's one of the angriest films I've seen in a long time, um, which was sick. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the other sweat lodge scene?
0: Yes, it's yeah. So like along their journey, they do an impromptu sort of like sweat lodge ceremony where, you know, it's it's after they've been trudging along for a while and Bud is very like hurting. He's starting uh, to get
3: a little delirious, too, at this point, not yeah. as severe as he is by the end when he's asking for like powdered soup and stuff. Dude, that 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 hit me hard. Yeah. Like that poor guy. I'm sorry. We'll we, we, I
1: do. I'm glad you brought it up, you know. Cause this guy, he's like going delirious from from pain and like having his fucking flesh cut off his shin and just being dragged around and <laughs> suffering and he's just like, I want some soup. Beef barley with crackers. <laughs> he's like and I'm just like ignoring him and then he he's just going on, he's like, I want some toast with the crust cut off. Like he just wants his like comfort foods. And I was thinking like, God, I would want some too after something so horrible.
0: Just <laughs> Beef barley soup with the little crackers. Yeah, that you yeah. can make
3: from a pack. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Marsh.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. And then there are, you know, Arthur's chanting and, and, and doing his thing and it's like very severe in the tent and the, the, the whiteies are just like coughing yeah. and like losing it. Uh and and Graham Green's got his shotgun like with him while he's doing this ceremony and he's like firing off shots to like you know wake up the the lawyer essentially well i was
3: gonna ask if you guys could tell what he was putting onto the stones because that was the reason they were coughing he was like putting i i was wondering if it was tobacco because it looked like he had unraveled a cigarette um, but he was like throwing stuff yeah. on there that you shouldn't be throwing oh, yeah. on there he was and that's making what... a
0: nasty brew yeah for these yeah, guys totally. he was
3: really corrupting the air yeah
0: Yeah, and so they're like having coughing fits, and then this is like escalating like sonically and like the score and the chanting, Uh, and then all of the sudden he just fucking chops off his own finger.
2: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm gonna cut my fingers up and make a necklace for your fat fuck Fuck one. Thy kingdom, thy will be done on earth (laughs) (laughs) as (laughs) it (laughs) is in heaven. Fuck your kingdom!
0: this sort of sonic spiritual battle between like Arthur's chant and Bud's prayer and, and then Peter's the coughing. and then yeah the, the lawyers just coughing in the middle and it's yeah it's a uh, quite a scene. Yeah, when he cuts off his own finger
1: and and goes through that I was like, "Oh my goodness, like what? Like what? <laughs> you know?" Yeah. But it, it sort of then made more sense to me looking at it again even from the beginning right you know on the one level like a finger it it sort of reminded me of like the trees being cut down you know this like digit you know Mm -hmm. and and arthur says at a certain point when they go to this cave and there are these sort of like uh figures that have been drawn on the cave walls there's the there's a sort of female form at one point and peter's looking at it and arthur says that's
2: my mother your mother the earth
1: and so again, if it's this idea that that we are and that Arthur particularly is of the earth and this figure of the earth, then then cutting down the trees is very much just like cutting off appendages, right, of this earth, of our earth, of the mother earth, of who we are. And and so it's like, from his perspective, even in this moment of like what more do you want from us you want this you want pieces of me you literally just want to chop this shit up here you go like here it is take more
0: when will you have enough you know when you've chopped all of our pieces off because that's right right after that is when he drags them up to like the highest point of the mountain and arthur says to bud
2: you're gonna hang here with the crows and watch the earth as it dies You're going to hang there and have a little chat with your god about what you killed. God. Ah. It's your god. Your god that shames this earth.
0: And then he just, like, props him up on a tree and talks about hanging him but really he just like chills there and lets peter save him but again and so that again either arthur is like a sweet mercenary that everyone hired to come in and do this commando mission and disappear or he's like yeah this otherworldly spirit or or worldly spirit rather right yeah because that's the moment where he takes them up and he just do you see
2: no (laughs) and you bloody well hang here until you do and then you can watch your goddamn machines cut it all down
0: and then he's like done you know he sort of is like no longer a man of action once they reach that summit and once once they reach that point where he's just like i don't know what else i can do i don't know what else i can tell you You
1: right and it's it's a great way of putting it because it's like that's it you know and if if you can't see it as he's trying to get them to see like if 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 it doesn't dawn on you if it doesn't click then there is no hope then there is no escape the the tragedy being that people can't see that people yeah. won't see that you can you can go through something so shocking and so one would presume eye opening and that people will just simply be like, "I don't see what you're getting at here, man. Like, yeah. I want some soup.
3: <laughs> I'm cold, right? Like,
2: I'm sorry. The
0: little crackers. You
3: know.
0: Oh,
1: man. Yeah. I mean, it's no escape for I me mean, right yeah. there, right? Like, we we can't escape from our failures, our failings as a society. And and again, why these things often appeal to me, and that's maybe because I just have a have nothing but anger in my heart as well. But I look at the failures of us in our world and I I go, yeah, there is no fucking escape. There is no hope. So I might as well revel in that, you know? I might go there. And why I really connect with a film like this. I mean, both these films, like Salto as well. Like there's there's anger in that, you know? There's a lot of frustration in that film with with us and who we are. But, but yeah, particularly in the case of Clear Cut, you know, for me, it's this sort of, it's both a call to action and also an indictment of, of action at times, you know, that we can do this and you can go to such extremes and there's still going to be people who aren't going to learn a fucking thing from it, you know, mm-hmm. that are, are going to just go and tell it as some sort of really traumatic thing that happened to them one day without learning any lesson, without being able to, to connect with it.
0: Well, one thing that I saw specifically was the great acting of Graham Greene. And oh, I think the yeah. film really is like a, a star vehicle for him yeah. more than anything. Or not more than anything, but that's one of the prominent sort of like elements in the stew. As you mentioned, Ryan, it is kind of a slapdash sort of arrangement of genres and, and other things. But, you know, like our other films. Salto both of these films are not only polish directors but also star vehicles in their in their own way and salto of course is a star vehicle for Sobolski uh, and he is pretty much in almost every frame of this movie because yes. he is the wanderer of the you know the european art house he is meandering and we're meandering with him and and encountering the uh, the people in this village with him, One thing I did want to bring up to you, especially, Andy, because you brought up Beckett earlier, and I found a little thing that I wanted to share to, you know, to give a little context for this movie and and this idea of no escape. And this is just basically what I cribbed from uh, the book No End in Sight, Polish Cinema um, hey. by Anna Krakis. And she, you know, talks about... This whole, you know, this whole sort of like movement of filmmakers in the 60s and 70s, of which, of course, Konowitsky is part of, right? And she talks about in, you know, communist Poland, right? Like any of the sort of satellites, you know, there's the idea of the two steps, right? Socialism, then we'll achieve full communism and everything will be great. This sort of promise that was never delivered, essentially, right? Oh, we're, we're doing socialism. We'll get there we're everything, you know. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so Konovitsky was very much like, yeah, a part of this generation who, by the late '60s and '70s, sort of f- felt that this utopia was like uh, an indeterminable deadline that was being endlessly postponed, and that holding out hope for this this idea of this utopia was reminiscent of Godot, right, specifically, and thinking, just yeah, this is becoming comical this is becoming frustrating right things aren't getting you know with every five year plan yeah right (laughs) you know and especially for a guy like Konowitsky who yeah had you know this this sense of of identity and especially Polish identity in contrast to the Russians historically that's a whole thing you Mm -hmm. know Uh, and all the the past of Poland so again like I just thought that was you know an interesting comparison that was brought up and it also sort of feeds into how a lot of these Polish direct had these like non-finished stories or sort of films that didn't have ends or films that in the case of Salto is like a circle yes right because Salto begins and ends even with the same images by the river and on the train just sort of in reverse
1: well it's again an interesting connection being that both films made by Polish directors and what you're describing, I think, is very much a a a big part of the Polish experience, the Polish identity, the idea of exiles and wanderers of having a country, losing a country, getting that country back, losing the country again, you know that you you often have these again, yeah, this like Polish identity. Of,
0: you know what the Polish national anthems called?: No. Poland is not yet lost.
3: Right. <laughs> wow. That's great. I was yeah. going to say, too, I think <laughs> one of the only um, Kieslowski features I haven't seen yet is called No End. Oh, yeah, that's a bleak one. Yeah, and I wasn't sure. I don't know what it's about, so I wasn't sure how much it related to this theme, it, but it to the title.
0: It relates explicitly and is a very very bleak movie.
1: (laughs) And it, you know, it, it it entirely makes sense, you know? And that's why I think, especially that, I think, period you're describing and, you know, some of my favorite uh, Polish films from that time also deal with this, like Salto, this very almost ethereal sort of idea of, of nationality, of identity, of authority, of power, of place even. And this film really revels in that, in that sense of oh, yeah. of uh, you know, murky understanding of like who you are and what you are and where you are and when you are. Sure. We'll go with all, <laughs> right? But yeah, you know, there's so much in these films about memory and and loss and amnesia as well, yeah. right? But yeah, I mean, both films are, I think they have that, this exile's eye on land and, and you know, a film about people connecting with their home or not connecting with their home, mm-hmm. of understanding or not understanding what home means. It it seems like a, a really, you know, <laughs> really or not Or
3: not realizing that they're dishonoring their home, right? I think some of those questions are brought up in Salto when... Mm-hmm people in the town are a bit resistant to the way he's handling things, I guess maybe is the way to say it.
1: Yeah. And maybe a good way to enter also to connect the two films, Marsh, um, is the way in which in both films, you have this star figure, this central character who kind of also mythically appears and disappears from both films. Right. If you think about the way that Graham Greene, Shows up in uh, in Clear Cut and the way he leaves Clearcut, there's a very kind of similar conceit in Salto as well, right?
0: Yeah, he just sort of mysteriously shows up to this town, and then mis- from the train, from the train, off the train, he jumps off a train. He says people are chasing him, and he frantically uh, makes his way into the village. And that's how he died in real life, too, right? He was, well, like, yeah, crossing the irony, train. Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
1: that's he, he jumped onto... He tried to, like, jump onto a moving train. And, again, the the weird cosmic irony of watching this film is that the film opens with him leaping off of a moving train and then, at the end, jumping onto a moving yeah. train two years before his death by being two crushed. Two years, wow. Crushed by a moving train, right? Two years before yeah. his death?
3: Yeah. Damn. Yeah. It's It's crazy. It <laughs> was a
1: signature move, and it ultimately... Yeah. He died as he lived, <laughs> jumping on and off the trains. Wow.
0: <laughs> So yeah, there's a little bit of this like framing story and so again it sort of sets the film up like this purgatory that he's almost entering and he wanders into this village. And as he starts to meet people and introduce himself to people, it's he well it's murky because he introduces himself as Kowalski Or Malinowski, he says he goes by both names, which were regrettably translated in our subtitles to Smith and Jones, because they're very common. Yeah,
3: Koloski as Smith made me laugh. That was super
0: funny. Yeah, it is pretty funny. Uh, So yeah, so he's going by multiple names, and he's claiming that he hid in this village during the war. And when people don't recognize him, he just sort of brushes it off. And he's also a, a, a tall tale teller and he's giving everyone this sort of schizophrenic frantic sob story as he's encountering these people in this village about things that happened to him before during and after the war which are challenged and contradicted by him and others throughout these conversations. And it's,
1: it's you know, again, you brought it up earlier in, in sort of situating it in this kind of like, you know, mid-late 60s European art house modernism kind of, of style. It sort of reminded me of the way that last year at Marionbad kind of unfolds, right? With a similar character who sort of shows up and starts telling everybody about you know, hey, this is this is how it all went down, right? And people being like, I don't know if it went down that way. I was like, like last year at Marion Badsky or whatever, you know? <laughs> you have this,
0: yeah, you have this character who's... He's like a walking identity crisis who's also, yeah, this like the memory of the war. And I mean, I think that's sort of how this character functions, right? Alternately as a trickster or prophet, as he is encountering all these people who, of course did survive the war and how did they how did they do that and what is life like? They're relating all this stuff to him. And so as the viewer, we're getting it, you know, but again, he's not your conventional character by any stretch. he's you can't pin him down. He's just this kind of ghost, right?
1: Because there's also an otherworldly there's also an otherworldly character that looms over the entire town because there's other characters who also, don't really know who they are or remember who they are, right? He meets the, the guy that uh, he sort of shacks up with, right? The man in the sweater. Yes, the man in the sweater who who can't seem to recall his own past, right? That there's a lot of characters who seem to have this kind of like amnesia that's affecting them.
0: And no one can sleep either. That's a recurring refrain in the film. Is like I haven't slept since the war.
1: Right. There's also the Blumenfeld who gets introduced to us, who, Fake who may or may not right be, be Blumenfeld. And 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 you know the character Zbigniew Sobolski's character, Kowalski, Smith or Jones, whatever you want to call him. Right. He tells him like, no, you are this guy. You can be this. And this guy's like, I'm not Blumenfeld. And he's like, well. You are now B Blumenfeld, right? So there's other characters that also have the sense of like, I was somebody else before. Who am I now?
3: Yeah. Who should I I be? The film like kind of gives you an avenue that you could maybe maybe take all of this, like a source where they're describing like there's a real hell down there and they're talking about all the uranium. That is, like, below the ground. And I don't know if the film is necessarily implying... Again, it, like, one thing that's impressive is that it, like, maintains this ambiguity, like, it, just, like, the whole time, essentially. Like, you, you're never really given any sort of comfortable answers about any bit of the movie. No. It's very purgatorial. Definitely. But the one I was most charmed by and liked to latch onto was that it was uranium just, like, poisoning everybody's minds. Um, but that's very much, like, this post-war, you know, fear, this, like, bridge right from World
0: War to and beyond they even say at a certain point that the town is no longer on the map they've just been excluded uh and there's some other comments about how the town was was empty uh after the war but it wasn't destroyed because it's yeah like contaminated or something like that right and again whether that's literally or spiritually I mean I do think uh, again there's a lot of biblical imagery in this movie you know similar to something like ashes and diamonds right also with Cebulski and I do think like there is an open interpretation that he's even the devil you know that's a possibility I think, as well, and one that a Polish audience would be more, you know, I think comfortable engaging with in terms yeah. of I mean, he's how clad the film in, he's unfolds.
3: Cl- he's clad in black the yeah. whole time. Oh, yeah. The so, sun hurts his eyes. He's always wearing the sunglasses. Yeah. Black you pants, know.
0: black shirt, black leather jacket, tinted glasses... He's just, you know, the king of cool. But he's also in this film, he's like having a perpetual nervous breakdown. And so a lot of the film is, yeah, this kind of just like stark black and white and you're like panning around these crammed spaces with him as he's freaking out or trying to sleep with uh, Cardigan Man's uh, teenage daughter, who he claims uh, his mother was his lover. He he meets a wide array of characters, right? So he meets uh, Cecilia, the fortune, teller who he also has a thing with as he claims to uh, be a soothsayer uh, of sorts himself
1: yeah because
0: uh, she reads his fortune then he's like
1: alright now I'm gonna read your fortune yeah
0: and then he devastates twists, yeah. her yeah. like <laughs> so turns the table big time yeah there's also the angry dad with the goatee, who's a poet oh, and yeah, has he his was, two children.
3: <laughs> he was my favorite. There's
0: also the uh, the whistling, sexy drunk man, yeah. who's just, like, hammered the whole film, whistling at women and pissing everyone off.
1: Yeah, I love that character, too, because uh, <laughs> it was, like, you know, that, par- that big party sequence later on, you know, that character you're talking about? He says, like, oh, welcome to the alcohol-free party, and it's, like, he's so hammered, like... <laughs> Uh, you clearly found some. Like,
0: yeah. I don't think it was <laughs> Everyone, that much of an dude. issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You guys drunk the whole movie. He's like, this party sucks. It's like, you're fucking blasted, dude.
0: Yeah. And there's Helena, right? The daughter. Uh, And there's also the old weird guy who's always trying to scare uh, people by doing uh, aggressively weird things. Like when you first see him, he's just like fashioning a noose in an orchard. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. And there's also, yeah, in addition to the characters in this town, there's another sort of like sign of the foreboding kind of like doom or purgatory of this place because a lot of the film takes place sort of as he's wandering outside and there's orchards and it's a huge bounty and everyone keeps telling him this is a really big harvest that means like the town is dying Mm -hmm. that means the town is dead like we wanted an average harvest this is a bad sign and so there's like yeah there's all this like (laughs) like fruit and trees and stuff like throughout the movie in addition and it does yeah just sort of add to this yeah otherworldly uh, kind of vibe that's going
1: on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people seem to be in an almost like trance-like state uh, throughout a lot of the film, yeah. and you know, at times he almost seems like the person who's most alive. Uh, again, paradoxically, right? That yeah. uh, he he sort of wanders in as almost this like yeah, this almost like spiritual, otherworldly kind of presence, but that he he himself seems to be like. Inst- instigating, like, so many of the, like, human connections between these people who are all just sort of, like, wandering around, going through the motions.
0: Oh, yeah. They're, like, sleepwalking. And specifically, too, like, Helena at one point says to uh, Kowalski, like, this is a hideous town full of, you know, gossips and spies. Uh, and again, so this sort of like, even though there are no like state authorities in the film, clearly, you know, the film is like, yeah, hinting at this oppressive sort of atmosphere that pervades this place they call Poland, right? Mm -hmm. And whether that's the past, the present, or the future, right? It's all of those things. Just thick with paranoia. And we're often seeing people through windows uh, in the film as he's looking in on different people or spying on the couple who's always making out.
1: There's the one character who, who kind of like startles him, like sneaks up on him, and he's like, I didn't even hear you coming or whatever. And then the guy says to him, our town is such that it is impossible to walk around around any other way than on your
3: tiptoes.
0: You can cut the tension with a butter knife yeah. uh, in yeah, this I, I can't town. remember
3: who says it, but I know at one point someone says, here, everybody peeps. Yeah. And there's like, yeah, that element too of sneaking up on each other, peeping, you know, looking around.
1: Yeah, and of course, like on the one level, you can connect it to this, you know... This idea of living in Poland in the 60s under the Soviet regime and the, you know, secret police, the, you know, the the idea of turning every neighbor into a spy like you sort of suggested, you know, that this is a town full of sins and secrets and everyone is keeping something from someone. No one really seems to be totally upfront about who they are, what they want what they hope for. Like no one's motivations are clear in any stretch of the imagination here. The only person who establishes any sort of like goal is, is him when he says, you know, I'm a pilgrim returning home. I've come to right wrongs. Yeah. But what are those wrongs?
0: Yeah. He implies multiple things, but right. uh, In the end, he does like at the big, you know, anniversary party that the film climaxes. in. he does like, you know, offer to, like, absolve the, tent, the town members, right? <laughs> this idea of him as this pilgrim who's here to, yeah, do something.
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I- I guess too, you know, building upon that and the the time period that well, a certain time period that this film is also addressing, right? The the specter of the war, the specter of World War II. You get this idea in Poland, right? This this question of like the sins of the past, the the complicity of the Holocaust, right? Of people, sort of. Looking the other way, or not doing things, not saying things, allowing things to happen—you know—and that whole point about the town being emptied, right? Um, you know, if you if you go yep. to one of, you know, this is going to be a really crass joke, but I was going to say one of the ultimate no escape films, Claude Lanzmann's Shoah. Uh, <laughs> when you go, right? I mean, there's like there's there's parts where in that in that film, like they talk about these Polish towns that were primarily. Jewish towns that were totally emptied. And then people just sort of moved in, right? Other Poles just moved in and occupied these these like ghost towns that were cleared out because of the Holocaust. And, you know, throughout show, there's that, that discussion of Polish people sort of going like, oh, well, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't, you know, I didn't put anybody in those camps, but you certainly didn't do anything to stop it. You certainly didn't speak up. You know, and I think that specter is also looming in this film, right? again, when you're not really clearly labeling like what the sins were and all these characters who who sort of don't really even know how to you know vocalize their sins or what wrongs need to be righted, like this is to me like one of the big ones that's sort of just kind of hanging there in the air.
3: Well, I, I just want to say I love that dad. That um our our guy you know he tosses the apple at those like little boys who are peeping like <laughs> from the bushes one of them yeah and then yeah like the the father comes back you know how dare you you know he like scolds him for tossing the apples at him and he's just uh he's also like a complete fool you know he's like inadequate as like defending his children i mean i guess i'm glad that he sticks to it he never like steps back defeated he's always registering at the same pitch in his fight for his boys Mm -hmm. uh but i really like at the end too when he does like a performance of one of his pieces and then he keeps referring to kowalski our guy as just like a hack and he calls him like you know one of the he's like Boys, like, look at this man. Like, this is one of the, the. I can't remember the way he phrases it, but he says like one of the all-time hacks. Like, you'll never see a hack who is a hackier than this guy. You know. Yeah. And the boys are
0: just like, all right. He's got it out for him. From the beginning, you yeah. know, because yeah, throws some shit at his kids and then he's just screaming at him the whole time, which is interesting because, yeah, one of the big moments in the film is when uh, all of the sudden this guy, the goatee poet guy's sons are, are ill. And, yeah. and Kowalski's like, I'll take care of this. Uh, and he saunters over and it's kind of just like off-screen, miraculously heals them in front of everyone. And so it really does become this sort of like as, you know, the whole film takes place during the course of a day. And he is, yeah, sort of building up this like profit kind of reputation as he's sort of challenging people's memory and, and, you know, hopping around telling these tales of the war. And again, it's it is, yeah, it is kind of like this like Mary and Bad loop in a lot of ways because even certain characters like every time he encounters them they'll like say the same stuff over again or they'll retreat into the same recollections uh, again and so uh yeah but it is clear that he is like affecting people mainly in a po- slightly positive way perhaps at least it sort of seems by the end as it builds up to this party and that's again another like really vague thing is there's all this talk like, oh, you have, well, you're going to stay, you know, tonight for the, the big anniversary party. We do it every year. But they never tell us anniversary of what, right? No, they do not, <laughs> right? And it's implied that maybe it has something to do with the war, but again, it's like totally vague. And when it, like, the day arrives, there's also all these motorcyclists who are riding through the village And they're sort of like, yeah, every time we do our anniversary, all these motorcycles ride through the village. And don't they say, like, (laughs) no one knows where they come from or where they're going? going. Yeah,
1: they just, like, rip through the town. But you're right, even, like, in that sense of describing it, those, like, loops, because... They come through that town like three or four times throughout. You know, it's like they're just doing this big lap like around the town. I mean, no one in this in this whole town seems it seems clear that anyone we know where any of these people have come from or where any of them are going, including the central character. I mean, he as you mentioned, you know, the film opens, he just jumps off a train saying he's being chased. We don't see anyone chasing him. So, who is chasing him? What is chasing him? Well, he does have those crazy
3: visions of soldiers approaching him. And it's like shot with a weird lens, like not quite an anamorphic lens, completely squeezed, but it's like squished. So they're all really tall and gangly and crazy as they're approaching him, these like cinematic nightmares.
1: What's also interesting about those, right? Because at first he has this vision of like German soldiers approaching him and, you know, one of them like sort of like opening up a piece of paper as if he's reading a list of charges or something mm-hmm. and then gets, you know, two machine guns pointed at him. He has that vision again and then he has it a third time, yeah. but it's not German soldiers now. Now it's uh, it's uh soldiers wearing Polish uniforms.
3: Oh, I didn't even pick who up on are that. Also going through it's the exact yeah.
1: same thing but now they're mm-hmm. wearing Polish uniforms. This film is full of doubles and in some cases triples I guess you could say of you know what is bad what is good uh and yeah you see German soldiers at one point hunting him down perhaps free Polish soldiers or you know now Polish Soviet authorities perhaps chasing him you know and this this idea for so many Polish who got caught in between those two sides. Right. That at first you had the Germans like moving in and then after the Germans moved out, the the Soviets moved in and took over. And you had resistance fighters who who fought both sides, you know. And I think that's a similar experience to what the director went through, because he fought not just the Germans, he also fought the Soviets. And that was what a lot of people in the Baltics, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Poland... They all had that same struggle. Those visions are also a part of
0: that. And that's, yeah, that and that's sort of like the historical trauma of Poland, you know, certainly in the 1800s as well, with him being partitioned multiple times, you know, between... Prussia and Russia and France uh, and Austria, right? Like, just a total fucking nightmare, right? This this place that you know, for th- you know, a filmmaker like this guy, going like, we've never, we've never had our own country, yeah. Right? At least Poland not any time. Existed, right? Yeah, right. Is this a real place? You know, like even that uh, yeah. is sort who of who are we now, right? right? And that's you know, it, it is of course too, right? Like thinking about this film, Salto is no escape, is fun. Because of course it's like an art film. So even though Kowalski's running around going like they are after me, like mm-hmm. you know, he's he's presenting this urgency and he has an urgency, he's it's not like he's physically you know prohibited from leaving this town at right. any moment right uh, obviously we're in we're in fucking dreamland we're in you know national memory land we're remembering the polish past and pontificating the future and sort of just existing in that space cuz again plot wise there's really nothing until it builds to the party and the party is a you know i loved it it's like of course the uh the art film scene where everyone comes together, right? He's met all these people individually, and now they're all in the same room, and there's a fantastic little orchestra, uh, and everyone is severely hammered. Yeah. It's like the John Ford Square dance, you know? <laughs>
1: yeah. You got to bring the whole town together, you
0: know? Yeah, and at first, of course, you know, no one is is dancing, And it's just a very sort of stilted event and, you know, tensions are high and people are, you know, getting on each other's nerves as Helena and the whistling guy are like just the only people on the dance floor. But at a certain point, of course, Kowalski revs up the party. He brings the life to town, the pilgrim, you know, coming to do his duty. And he starts by, yeah, like playing a sweet, jazzy, like bass line on the the upright bass, which is then very wonderfully handled. Hand it off to the musician I liked. I was like, is he really gonna? And he like yeah. he kind of pulled it off. But uh, so then they play this like really jazzy song and everyone is doing this like really goofy synchronized dance yeah, there's a big dance number we should point <laughs> out in this film which
1: just made me very happy yeah. that it, it kind it of reminds of me of like Bellatar
0: you know like I was sort of the same thing, you know yeah. like climaxing with some just like depraved just, uh, synchronized like accordion dance or whatever Yeah, and it is the titular dance as well because he says this is the salto, like the, the jump or the somersault. Uh, and it's apparently, yeah, the dance they're they're doing, you know? And maybe it's maybe it's a dance of the dead, you know? If you want to look at it like all these people are, just like, yeah, the, the ghosts of Poland hanging out in this village. And, and here he comes to do his, his dance number. But that, yeah, I fucking, of course, just loved that sequence. Yeah, and the dance is good and, like, all the weirdos from the movie are doing it. Uh, yeah, everyone
1: uh, shouldn't know how to do it, but but clearly <laughs> does know how to do
0: it. yeah. To jest salto.
2: Zapamiętajcie ten taniec.
1: that whole sequence though there's so much packed into that whole anniversary party that just made me like stop I mean I had to like pause the film at at a few moments to sort of like go back and hear what a character had said again because there were some some big you know revelations in there that aren't necessarily going to help you understand whether or not this is real or or you know a figment of someone's imagination or purgatory or whatever um but you know a addressing what the film is, is, is exploring. And again, not in a clear cut way, but in a way that like requires you to sit and sort of think and engage and question like what you heard, what you saw, what, you know, what you think, you know, um, there was one line particular when is the poet or the actor who gets up and starts reciting
0: like it's Blumenfeld,
1: Blumenfeld gets up at one point and starts reciting. And like, it's, it's sort of a poem, but then it becomes kind of a song, right? They start to play music, and he starts to sort of sing the, the lines as well.
0: I potrafi zaufać, uwierzyć, mimo gorzkich doświadczeń i przeżyć, być na ziemi i bujać w oblokach, jednym słowem
1: nie człowiek, epoka. And he's kind of describing, like, he's sort of talking about himself, but he says, in a word, not a man, but an epic. And and he repeats that phrase, in a word, not a man, but an epic. And I was thinking, like, okay, what, like, what does that mean, right? It, it means something. It's got to be in connection to something. But again, to me, you know, if you think about, like, an epic, what is it? It's a it's a time, it's a period of time, and it's a period of time marked by, you know, often big events and cataclysmic events. So it's sort of like, again, going back to this idea of, you know, are these actualized people or are they merely figures of a grand sense of, of Poland or Polish identity, right? And so... They aren't people. I'm not a man. I am an emblem of a time, a time caught between worlds, countries, nations, periods of existence.
0: There are, yeah, there are a lot of truth, like philosophical truth bombs being like dropped or pontificated at the anniversary party. Like at a certain point, Kowalski says, a man consists of conscience, love and memory. And then later the poet even does say <laughs> to Kowalski he says, "This town does not exist, and these people are dead. they're ghosts and sins, you know, to his face." And he again, you know, everyone's just. you know all zombified out or whatever no one reacts to like stuff like that right uh the con you know the very again this sort of like art film inaction talk about you know inaction and clear cut also a lot of inaction uh on the residents of our village here. you know i mean so thinking about the prompt and thinking about the idea
1: of like oh escape and escape films you know in the classic idea of like movement image cinema like you know delusian movement image right it's 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 about that trajectory movement escape films are about characters trying to get from one place to the next and having a, a clear mission or path whether it's like i gotta break out of alcatraz or i gotta get out of this city or wherever it is right there's this sense of like movement and action in their escape but i think that the idea of no escape has always appealed to me because it's more like the time image cinema you know, where, where it's not about movement, it's about time becoming visible. And Deleuze says that the ultimate hero, if you want to call it that, for this type of cinema, time image cinema, is not the agent, not the actor, but the seer, right? So it's not a character that's going to save the world or break out of the prison it's the person who's sort of their lot is to watch to see to observe and not even necessarily to like judge but to simply witness right and that's kind of what yeah because he's the audience yeah
0: he's the audience surrogate and that you know led me to thinking again about no escape not just in relation to the films but in relation to the audience And the idea of a film as an escape, escapism and entertainment, right? And then thinking about no escape in relation to, yeah, no escapism. These movies are not an escape for anyone, for the audience or their characters,
3: right? Yeah, I felt (laughs) suffocated by both films in very different ways.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, Salto has has that Marion Bad vibe where you're trapped and clear cut as well. Just had this sort of inevitability uh, to it all and this sort of like cosmic resonance where you're just like and
3: just like gets you anxious and on edge. Yeah, you know, where you feel you need to take action <laughs> because the film is so in your face. You
0: know. Yeah, and one thing too, like the in creating that vibe in in Salto, the there is no score except this very, like, sparse and minimalist, almost like, it's almost like music concrete, because it's just like a clanking. There's just like a metal clank and a slight drone. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, there's no music the whole movie, other than when the orchestra's jamming out at the party. And again, it creates this, like, vacuum and this... Unreality because the soundtrack is so sparse. There's nothing on the soundtrack.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a dead town. I mean, whether or not these people are literally dead, like they're they're, they're certainly like metaphorically dead in the sense that yeah, there there's not a lot of life on the soundtrack. There's not a lot of hustle and bustle going on in the streets. Just people sort of like
0: digging holes in the earth everywhere, (laughs) you
1: know, and like throwing apples at kids. Yeah. And
0: because there even are. Yeah. I mean, there there are things that sort of like hold up to Kowalski's, you know, tales. Right. Because he does like when he shows up in this town, he does dig something up and finds it, and pulls it out very early on. Yeah, it's like an explosive, isn't it? It's like a
3: mine or something? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I remember thinking like, ooh, good thing he threw the apple at the kids and not that random thing that he just tossed and exploded. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. But what's interesting, again, is that that's not even like an avenue that's fully then like explored. Like he goes, and yes, he digs something up, and I was thinking like, Is he got like a cache of weapons here, like, you know, resistance fighter shit or whatever. And he does sort of like pull this something that explodes, whether it's not, whether it's an explosive or not, like he throws in and fucking blows up. But like, he doesn't continue digging. He doesn't pull anything else out of that hole in the ground, just that. But there are then other characters who are also digging. And somebody makes a comment about it, right? And it says, something like, everyone's, like, searching for something. Everyone's
0: the one, they're, like, looking for a treasure. There's, like, multiple references to people being, like, gonna find the treasure. Yeah, it's like, like, German like, gold yeah. or
1: something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No escape on that one either, guys. Sorry. I would also point out,
1: like, you know, as you said, this this final dance where he does kind of, like, affect people a little bit. You know, this is this moment. It's like the most, I guess, if you want to call it like action, like action happens with this big
0: dance number and And togetherness and
1: togetherness and people sort of like connecting. And then there's like a little bit of a wrestling match between him and the captain. Oh yeah. And he sort of seems to like break through and, and get through to people. And it is this moment where you're looking at him and going, wow, he is, I guess this like prophet and this, this, this mythical important figure But that also then gets subverted.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The next morning, it's day, and you see there's a woman talking to the townspeople, and she is looking for her husband. She says he's a liar and a lecher, and he's always on the move. And the townspeople say, we thought he was a prophet. And then it's revealed to be Kowalski Malinowski's wife and two children. And then... After
1: telling people he's never been with a woman before or whatever. Yeah, or that
0: they were dead and that he's also never been with a woman. And uh, again, he did sleep with Cardigan Man's daughter, Helena, at some point uh, in the film as well.
1: Yeah, everyone's like, what the fuck is the deal? And his wife shows up and then he just bolts (laughs)
0: right yeah and then he like he entered he leaves the same way he crosses the same river and sees the same nude bathing beauties and then he gets and hops up on the train and again the film ends with that sort of like complete circle uh ending uh kowalski's time in uh our fun favorite yeah, town yeah. that we all love to hang out in.
1: Anywhereville, Poland.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But it's great though, again, thinking of him as we discussed with like clear cut as this like trickster figure, because a trickster's also a bit of a charlatan. And like, I think that's such a great moment where, you know, he has all this stuff. He's like, miraculously heals some kids and he reads the fortune teller's fortune. And he, you know, he's doing all these very prophetic things and helping people have real revelations about who they are. And then it's like, no, that's my husband. He's a liar. He's full of shit. Yeah. Someone and throws a rock at him. Yeah, the <laughs> people start chasing him and throwing rocks at him. And he, and he is this just like confidence man who then has to just, like, flee before he gets tarred and feathered by the yeah. townspeople. And
0: it's like, yeah, he's running away, being like, we're from the same home, you know, being pelted by rocks. And again, it's like this, yeah, this sort of, like, neat, uh, t- you know, tiny little encapsulation of everything that the film is sort of, like, building towards. Just, again, this this land called Poland that is just, like, always contested and always a problem and no one can fucking sleep. Uh, And that's just really the vibe I got overall.
1: And also that, like, I think a a very 60s kind of cynicism about heroes and about leaders and, you know, religious figures and and anyone that's going to tell you they have all the answers, right? Uh, That it's sort of like, hey, at the end of the day, these are also just people and people are all fucking shitty you know and these shitty people sometimes lead entire nations to do very shitty things like there's a great part at that at that anniversary even where you know uh one of the one of the the figures in the town is is talking about like that like human frailty and you know good and evil and all that stuff and and he he says some really interesting things about how there's no more bottom anymore. Right. There's no more fall to the bottom. Like, what does that mean? Like, I think, again, that comes from that, that post-war mindset of like, look, things like the Holocaust and the destruction of, of World War II, this is grand Europe, the, the, the center of uh, the enlightenment and all this stuff, you know, and great thinkers and philosophers and artists. And yet, still to this day, this is a nation torn apart by sectarianism, nationalism, violence, ethnic cleansing, and all these kinds of nightmares, you know, that where is the bottom? Well, there is no more bottom. We've all already fallen. The guy says, now we just fall horizontally. Right. Which I thought was just so telling in that, in that, you know, that we're all indicted here, whether
0: through our action or, are in action right all right well andy it was your uh turn this week for the topic and uh i hope i hope we gave you the no escape you were looking for oh yeah absolutely well what other uh you know what comes to mind for you you know as you were thinking about this theme what are what's like yeah a a no escape movie that uh that you would pick. I mean, wow, so many of them.
1: I mean, we joked a little bit, and I think even, like, I might have mentioned it last week, uh, but, you know, <laughs> I'm a big fan of the movie No Escape with Ray Liotta. Uh, I know you are as well.
0: One of my favorites.
1: And that's, that's you know, maybe the you know the, the titular film, right? So it's maybe a little too on the nose, but it's, a, you know, a weird sci-fi film from the 90s about a, a penal colony, right, somewhere yep. in, like, some island and... Ray Liotta gets, gets uh, wrongfully convicted and sent to this this prison colony. And then, you know, I'm sure you can imagine it's sort of like Mad Maxi and Lord of the Flies all kind of combined into one.
0: One correction, he's rightfully committed because, in fact, in the opening title sequence, he uh, walks up to his commanding officer in a military parade and shoots him point-blank range. That's right. It's only later when he's in Michael Lerner's dystopian prison that he's sort of bullied and, and wrongly sent to Absalom, the penal colony island.
1: Right, okay, yes. You. I, I forgot that minor detail. Maybe it's not a minor detail. It's a pretty big detail, like he should have been in jail or
2: whatever. You know? but,
1: but
0: Yeah, you know, I mean... I, but it's because he was exposed War crimes. It's true. Yes, it's true. Well, uh, next week it is Ryan's turn to choose the topic. So, what do you have for us this time?
3: I feel like a lot of the films we've watched have been grappling with some some big moral questions, uh, and particularly this last week, they were pretty heavy. So, I wanted to just keep riding that wave. And the topic I am uh, challenging you both with is sympathy for the devil. I want you to bring me a film about a figure, a historical figure. I guess maybe not necessarily it has to be historical, but someone who in certain circles, whether it be the left, the right, somewhere in the middle, is seen as an unambiguous evil. And here we'll have a film, whether it be a biopic, documentary, or just somewhere in between, that sort of humanizes this figure. So show me some sympathy for the devil next
0: week, and let's see what we find and learn. Awesome. Our descent continues. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies, or you could send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. We're doing a
2: hunt around here. Who's does it look like, for Christ's sake? We're trailing the moose. Have you seen our moose? Do I look like a fucking moose? Elmer? Oh, fuck. Yeah, right, fuck. This is Indian land, chief.